So a blind woman and her feral child walk into the wrong office. No, this isn't the beginning of a sick joke. This is actually the case of Jeannie Wiley, one of the more tragic cases in child research and human rights as a whole. I'm Rob Gavigan, and I'm here to bring you down the dark path of Jeannie Wiley, the feral child that the world has largely forgotten. If you're into topics of the dark and mysterious, you'll want to follow my Facebook page now, because you won't want to miss what's next. It was November of 1970, a legally blind woman by the name of Irene walked into the child welfare office in Los Angeles County, California. She meant to walk into a different office for resources for the blind, but it just so happened that her mistake would change a number of lives going forward. The people working there perked up as they saw the woman enter with a young girl, probably no older than seven years old, who was barely able to walk. Instead, she had more of a shuffle or a hop, kind of like a rabbit. She drooled and spat, grunted and growled freely, not caring what anyone might have thought looking at her. Clearly, the little girl had some mental issues going on, but that wasn't all there was to it. The little girl, whose name was Jeannie Wiley, which is actually a pseudonym to protect her identity, wasn't as young as the office workers believed. She wasn't six or seven. She was double that. She was on her way to 14 years old, which was a bit jarring, because due to her mannerisms and even her physical appearance, she appeared to be stunted, held back severely. They had no idea just how true that was. The mother, Irene, had just broken free from her husband, who was 20 years her senior, a Mr. Clark Wiley. Clark was a piece of human garbage. I don't say that lightly. He was your pretty run-of-the-mill case of a child with a bad upbringing going on to spread their own trauma onto others. But Clark took everything to a totally new level, unseen by any of the researchers that would come to work with Jeannie. Jeannie's limitations weren't due to some genetic condition or because of some kind of accident. They were the result of continuous abuse since the day she was born. Needless to say, Jeannie was taken in and became a ward of the state of California. This is when she began working with psychologists and other specialists who focused on the effects of child abuse. Jeannie could barely speak a word, aside from a very small handful of them like Blue, Go, or Mother. It's pretty heart-wrenching to know any parent could inflict this kind of thing on any child, never mind their own. So many parents out there want their kids to have better lives than they did. Clark Wiley just seemed to want to make everything worse going down the line. So why was Jeannie in the shape she was? What did Clark do? This is where it gets fairly deranged bewildering, actually, in a way. Clark had kept Jeannie tied up pretty much at all times throughout her entire life. She spent most of that time chained to a children's potty. When she wasn't there, she was strapped down in her bed in this straight jacket type device that Clark had very likely made himself specifically for her. When she was particularly young, he even installed wire mesh over her crib so there was no chance of her getting out. If Jeannie cried, as toddlers often do, or did anything Clark didn't like, which was probably anything at all, he would growl at Jeannie like a wild animal. 
If his toddler was hungry and crying, because that was her only way of communicating due to being so young, and that being her instinctual reaction to alert her parent that she needed to be cared for, his reaction would be to scare her into being quiet. But it also went beyond that as well. Clark wasn't just mentally abusive, he was physically abusive as well. He effectively trained his own daughter to always fear him not out of some warped lesson trying to teach respect or obedience. It was because he truly, with every fiber of his being, hated Jeannie. He never wanted her, but he ended up getting his wife pregnant and having her anyway. So often the story, isn't it? Then he made sure Jeannie was the one who suffered for it in ways most adults would have been broken under in mere days. Jeannie had endured it for almost 14 years, her entire life. But just in case you're not appalled enough already, don't you worry, because Clark and Irene had more children together. That's right, three other children all came before Jeannie did. Their fates were different, but tragic all the same, as I'm sure you can imagine. This is where you may begin to see the failure of these helpless children by the state of California, but trust me, it doesn't end there. But we'll get to that in a minute. The first child that Clark and Irene had, a girl, didn't make it past infancy because she was left out in their freezing cold garage to die, and die she did. I'm sure Clark was thankful that he didn't have to endure the noise of a crying baby anymore. Clark hated noise. He didn't care what the source was or the reason it was happening. All noise was the same to him. If it didn't stop, he'd need to stop it somehow. Their second child, also a girl, died of complications during birth. Sadly, she could probably be seen as the luckiest of the wily children. The third boy was named John. John miraculously survived his childhood, but suffered at the hands of his father as well. John was beaten repeatedly and was witness to the treatment of his baby sister, Jeannie, which haunted him for the rest of his life. When she was locked up in her bedroom, as if it was a prison cell, he was there to see it. Well, truthfully, prisoners are treated infinitely better than Jeannie was, so that's a bit insulting to prisons. John felt guilt for the abuse he and Jeannie both endured, and sadly only went on to continue the cycle of self-inflicted misfortune that plagued his entire family. He became a criminal and a father of his own daughter. John's family fell apart, and he went on to fail his own daughter Pamela, who turned to drugs. Pamela had two children of her own, John's granddaughters, and she went on to fail them as well and was charged with child endangerment over her drug usage. John died from complications from diabetes in 2011. His daughter Pamela died merely one year later. That's how bad things were. Clark's abuse was reflected onto the rest of his bloodline. I'm not sure how Pamela's children have turned out, but it's likely things won't go much differently. Hopefully they do, of course. But Clark Wiley was charged with crimes of child abuse shortly after Jeannie's discovery. And before he could answer for his reprehensible acts, he offed himself by way of a gun and left a note behind that read, The world will never understand. Irene had fled with Jeannie due in part to her deteriorating eyesight and Clark having become considerably worse in 1970 after his mother was killed by a drunk driver. He became more violent, more cruel, paranoid, and unpredictable. 
Once researchers started to look at Jeannie and they realized her linguistic limitations, they wanted to see if she could learn English and how effectively she could use it. To make something happen with a child this damaged by abuse could shine hope on other childhood victims of abuse. Jeannie's story hit the news, covered by legendary news anchors such as Walter Cronkite. Everyone wanted to know if the damage done to little Jeannie, who had been brutalized into essentially becoming a wild animal, could be reversed to any degree. Jeannie would urinate or defecate herself when stressed. That's how deep the abuse went in changing her mind. One researcher who came to know Jeannie, however, and helped her was a linguistics professor of UCLA named Susan Curtis. Susan and Jeannie became close friends, and Jeannie remarkably showed some really major progress once she was cared for and actually taught. Jeannie learned to speak far more effectively, and for anything she couldn't say, she would draw pictures. Researchers noticed that Jeannie was actually able to form thoughts in her own unique way in her mind to assist her with communication. She was able to use words, but unable to use grammar. She wasn't able to put words together into a way that made much sense. But she did eventually learn to dress herself and to chew and eat properly, and grasped an appreciation of music, all things she was unable to do before she had received help. The way Jeannie composed her thoughts showed how brilliant she could have been if she'd been in a loving environment while she was raised, but getting her to that point wasn't possible, not with the damage done and the damage that was to come. Susan Curtis remarked on how Jeannie's case proved that there was a time limit to learning proper language skills, occurring between the ages of 5 and 10. Once that time passed, the window closed for Jeannie, so they had to do the best with what they had to work with. Susan was immensely proud of Jeannie and her progress, but their friendship and connection wasn't going to last all that much longer. Tragically, it wouldn't be merely Jeannie's own family who came to fail her. Drama began to stir behind the scenes between the research teams who were vying for control over Jeannie's future. Then the well of funding for her research ran dry and she was forced into California's foster care system. As anyone who's familiar with these kinds of systems knows, there's a fairly large probability for this story not to get much happier from here, and fair warning, it doesn't. Jeannie bounced from foster home to foster home. For a short time, Irene, Jeannie's mom, was able to regain custody of her. That didn't last long, as Irene said it was too overwhelming to care for her and had to forfeit her back into foster care. Irene would pass away in 2003. Foster homes eventually became state-run institutions. Susan Curtis tried to maintain contact with Jeannie, but social work in control of her affairs have never allowed Susan to say so much as a single word over the phone to her. Susan can't even send letters, birthday cards, nothing. The social workers essentially have never allowed anyone to have any form of contact. The last time Susan said she spoke with Jeannie was back in the early 80s. Sadly, as these institutions swallowed Jeannie up, her progress began to fade away. She started to lose words and skills that she was once proud of achieving. Her brain was reverting back to its most primal state, cultivated by almost a decade and a half of abuse followed up by foster home failures and the harsh life inside of psychiatric institutions. A scientist by the name of Jay Shirley, who had been in attendance at Jeannie's 29th birthday, 
long after she'd been taken out of the research program, said that Jeannie had, in fact, become hopeless, essentially. She wasn't able to focus on anything anymore. Her hair was partially hacked off with no consideration for her appearance. She appeared always to be lost in a state of incomprehension. Jeannie couldn't even make eye contact anymore. It seemed that California's institutions hadn't just halted progress, but had actively accelerated her deterioration. Anyone who knew of the progress she made saw it as heartbreaking. The utter failure of Jeannie's care was, in many regards, either ignored or went unnoticed. At the time she was taken out of research, Vietnam was splashed across the headlines. The Beatles had broken up just the year Jeannie was discovered, and the press got a lot of mileage out of that story. In the decades since Jeannie's forced isolation, Susan has still been barred from making any contact with her. However, she does still try. Jay Shirley remarked on Jeannie's story in a way that seems to best sum everything up. He said, quote, she was this isolated person, incarcerated for all those years, and she emerged and lived in a more reasonable world for a while, and responded to this world. And then the door was shut, and she withdrew again, and her soul was sick. Susan Curtis had her own piece to say, saying, I'm not in touch with her, but not by my choice. They never let me have any contact with her. I've become powerless in my attempts to visit her or write to her. I long to see her. There is a hole in my heart and soul from not being able to see her that doesn't go away. Jeannie Wiley's whereabouts are currently not known. Although it's believed she's still under the care of the state of California, it's unlikely that Jeannie's fate will ever be known until her eventual passing. But as for now, it remains under lock and key just like Jeannie. Thank you for watching. I'd love if you'd follow my Facebook page. I would just absolutely love that. For more content from me, make sure you don't miss anything because I've got a lot in store for you. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. That's it. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.